I know I've only been pregnant once before, but I've just got a feeling that this is twins again. And he practically rolled his eyes at me uh-huh. to tell me not to be ridiculous. And then a few minutes later, he said, ah, oh, it does look like there's more than one in there. And in that moment, I didn't know if I'd won or lost. <laughs> You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. We've all got a tale or two to tell, and each week you'll be hearing from my special guest who joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. Today I'm delighted to be chatting to Katie Walton, mother, wife and author. When Katie set up her own PR agency over a decade ago, motherhood was not in her business plan. And certainly being a single mum to twins from when they were just five months old was not one of her projections. Upon discovery of being pregnant with her two boys, Katie found there was not very much information for mothers expecting multiples. And within that, she discovered an opportunity. Using her PR savvy and address book, she started to contact parenting titles, writing blogs and profile pieces for various magazines and outlets. Today, Katie would be called a blogger and influencer, but back then that term didn't exist. Her debut book, Twins, The Practical and Reassuring Guide to Pregnancy and Year One, was published in 2011 and went on to sell across the globe. And plot twist... Katie found herself dusting off a copy just a few years later when she became pregnant with a second set of twins. I mean, I just, I can't wait to hear more about this. (laughs) As a professional communicator, of course, storytelling is a huge part of Katie's life. When preparing for this conversation, she described the bedtime stories that mark the end of her day as she tucks her sons in for the night. The story she tells herself about who she is what she can and should be, and the story she sees her children creating about their world as it unfolds before them. Through her work, she crafts the stories a brand or organisation needs to tell in order to be understood by the people they seek to reach. Katie recently started an in-house working from home communications role, enabling her to be present for her children whilst producing meaningful work. She feels lucky to have been introduced to her new boss, a person who places spiritual values at the centre of all that he does, making Katie's return to employed corporate life an easier transition and one aligned with her own views. In Katie's own words, the biggest story of all, of course, is why are we here and what does it mean? I've been fortunate to sit with Indigenous shaman in recent years, and those experiences greatly informed my evolving outlook on who I am and why I am here. Katie and her husband Ross live near beautiful Bath with their many twins and a scruffy little Bedlington Terrier named Marley. Katie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And I, I just can't wait to hear more about your fascinating adventurous journey. Oh, Rebecca, this is such a treat. And yeah, I have to book in windows to talk to people to get some time away from my children, who I love dearly. But an adult <laughs> conversation is is a rare treat indeed. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm so pleased we've been able to find the time to do this. So, I mean, I don't know where to begin with this epic tale. 
Um, I know you spent your early 20s living in London. So should we start there? How did you find yourself to be in London and what were you doing? So I finished my English degree at Loughborough University, always being more of a, a words uh, kind of girl than numbers and, and Excel spreadsheets and things. So English degree it was, and then dreams of um, getting into journalism. Uh, and as many people will have found to get your foot in the door uh, to kind of get your work experience and placements and things, you have to work for nothing. So you have mm. to somehow fund a life in London whilst not earning yeah. any money <laughs> trying <laughs> trying to write. And there's a whole conversation about why that needs to change uh, in itself. But I, I had a go at... Uh, cracking the kind of journalism dream that way and inevitably ran out of money before I ran out of enthusiasm. So I had a meandering London chapter, which was great fun. And, you know, a lot of spontaneity in London that I think you take for granted while you're there. And obviously in COVID land, perhaps it's not quite the same, but pre-pandemic times, you know, it's only when you leave the city, I think, that you realize how many different types of people you meet every day. Uh, so that was that, I, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I spent a few years in, in house shares with various groups of wonderful people, got up to mischief and, uh, and had some fun. And then I met the father of my eldest twins, and yeah, twins was not something <laughs> <laughs> that I that I ever really anticipated in my life. People always say, "Are they in your family?" Mm -hmm. You know, no, no, they're not. It was it was just me. So that relationship um, broke down very quickly and was quite challenging. So when those my eldest twins were just a few months old, I left that London chapter mm -hmm. and moved to Buckinghamshire where I raised them as single mum for five years and then I think there's not so much a job for life these days in no. the way that there used to be perhaps our parents generation the generation before in fact I think you're kind of expected to you know, there's all these words, side hustle and, you know, yeah, and, and portfolio careers. Yeah, I like that, actually. That's mm, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I certainly, I think because my life has been quite chaotic in the sense that it's been very heart led. And although people who I consider to be quite wise will say, you haven't taken a wrong turn or a wrong step, you know, you're exactly where you're meant to be. Yeah, I would feel that some of those choices and experience that that I've had, however fun, didn't come from a place of balance. Mm. They came as I learned to find my way to a, to a place of more still insight. Yeah. But I and maybe I would say that's probably part and parcel of being, you know, in your twenties, thirties is mm. is kind of just settling into who you are so I think what was my London chapter like and that bit of my life it was a lot of searching mm -hmm. um, and a lot of questing and not really knowing what from or what for so I think I'm quite passion-led I've you know I'll follow the things I like without logic perhaps yeah so and then just layering the two strands of of motherhood and ambition which I think mm -hmm. 
currently, you know, there are a lot of conversations happening and much needed conversations about balance again, that word again, and and how Mm. I think on some days I feel quite frustrated by the have it all narrative that we were sold our generation I think particularly kind of when that started when we were at school and you know it was wonderful that we were taught science and told that we could do anything we wanted and and obviously these conversations aren't finished gender pay gap and Mm. representation you know we're a long way from perfect but I think our generation was made to feel there was a chance of some kind of equality but Mm. it feels like to me rather than doubling our chance of success in having it all maybe we halved our chance of happiness and satisfaction because motherhood is a full-time role Mm. and I think one of the biggest rebrands that needs to happen for motherhood is it needs to be valued as something that is important and and fulfilling yeah but I say that also with an awareness that for a lot of women, motherhood isn't fulfilling. It's actually quite tedious and repetitive and hard and exhausting. And I think what compounds that is the lack of community around it mm-hmm. and a lot of split narratives where, you know, and I've come off Instagram now because I found it too frustrating. But I think some of these social media outlets, there's a lot of sisterhood flag waving where these women are saying you know oh, my side hustle fits with my children and and I I think a lot of those women and I'd love you know maybe I'll be shot down maybe I'm completely wrong but I think a lot of these women are are still trying to prove something to the outside world and I think there needs to be more honesty about how hard it is to 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 do motherhood and something, you know, all these different labels that we seek our identity in and how many of them are really, you know, important, appropriate and honest. Mm. I mean, it's so complex and there's so many layers to it, as you say, and it's also incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, we are in a time where we need to recognize and appreciate each other's choices Mm -hmm. so there's obviously a lot of discussion around full-time motherhood versus working motherhood and they're almost Mm -hmm. like pitted against one another Mm -hmm. rather than just the broader acknowledgement that motherhood full stop is is hard it's Mm -hmm. hard and it's hard in different ways for each of us and you know finding things outside of that the day-to-day caregiving or caretaking that brings us back to who we are and enables us to remember exactly who we are, I think is an ongoing challenge that those of us that do have children face. Mm. I think we have forgotten how historically we weren't meant to be doing as much as we are on our own. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, we've moved, I think this is, and I know we've got some other topics that we want to talk about later where this all kind of tease into, but I think our what we carry as a burden on our own feels heavy because it is, <laughs> because yeah. we're not, you know, and this glass half empty or glass half full, it's about how long you have to carry it. And most of us are carrying a lot without really ever being able to put it down and just reset or recharge. So I think it's about support and community. And again, really pertinent um, words at the moment where 
it's currently illegal to meet with people or sit mm. with people or, you know, it, it's just an extraordinary time of isolation, I think. And I think that's why the conversation we're having today and the connections that pe people are looking for kinship, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And, and that word community. And we've moved away from people don't go to church as much. And, you know, I, and I think all of historically, these kind of pillars of the community where you would go to for connection, support, guidance, elders, wisdom. And I think that's now been distilled and lost. And we're looking for all those things whilst scrolling through our phones all the time. So that desire for connection is still there. But what those available outlets are and people's motivation for seeking them is is changed a lot i mean i completely agree i mean as a slight aside it's interesting how we came to know one another is uh, through the non-profit under one sky which is a homelessness initiative and i mentioned that because um we were very busy and active during lockdown and going out into central london each day taking food and, and supplies to our homeless friends and we attracted a lot of new volunteers. And one of the main themes, um, speaking to volunteers, was that they were looking for connection. They were looking to contribute. They were looking for community. And during a time when everyone was being asked to stay home, you know, a lot of people, particularly those that lived alone, or perhaps have been furloughed or you know, just weren't finding their kind of the, the usual ways or anchors by which they lived life. They were really seeking something outside of themselves that was rooted in meaning and compassion. And so I think we'd been talking about motherhood, but I think that it transcends across humanity at the minute, actually, that everyone is really seeking to have genuine connections with one another. I completely agree. And I, you mentioned people feeling not anchored, I think was the, the word you used or, or rooted. And mm. I think, I think you're right to say humanity. I don't think that is too um, grand a, a kind of term. I think that it's actually very essential at the moment that we consider that Perhaps we are all untethered. We're all adrift. We're all lost as humanity. And mm -hmm. I think that comes again. It's all linked um, into all the various threads and challenges that, that we've spoken of and all the very many ways people are looking for connection and that sense of lonely isolation or failure, depression, all that end of the shadow spectrum. You know, when people talk about your shadow self and it's all these bits of us that we want to reject but actually we I think need to just sit with them because they all need acknowledgement and they all need the validity of those feelings is is very real and I think this rejection of bits of ourselves again collectively as humanity I, I feel like there is a a kind of global insanity at the minute where we're just I don't know, the world's pitched into utter chaos. And and I feel like there's an awful lot of division and secular, and I don't mean that in a religious sense. I just mean people literally being alone or secluded, I suppose, is where that word mm -hmm. comes from. Um, and I think, you know, and it sounds naive, and you mentioned in your intro about fairy tales and all these stories and ancient 
parables and tales that have reminded us of our of what we have in common. And I think what's yes. happened is we're focusing on 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 what divides us. And and again, it, it does sound very naive almost, but I think it sounds naive because science and logic has become regarded as superior to compassion and heartfelt and and I think I think really we need a reintegration and we need to come back to remembering that we're citizens of Earth, you know, and, and I think we need to recognize that certain groups have been, you know, ostracized more than others. But I do wonder the merit in competing for who is the most hard done by versus just remembering what we've got in common. I think looking for yeah. these constant different, and like you said, working mum, stay at home mum, you know, black, white, gay, straight, everybody. Labels. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think maybe we need to, yeah, do, do away with labels. I think so. Do you think that this time that we've had, some people have been calling it the great pause. Do you think that this in some ways has been an opportunity or an invitation for people to reflect um, and consider their connection to themselves as much as anyone else? I definitely think for some people, this has been a chapter for reflection and, and pause, but I also recognize that if you are able to wrap up your corona pandemic experiences as a time for self-inquiry, that perhaps comes from a place of privilege. And actually, yeah. for, a lot of, for a lot of people, it's been bloody hard. You know, they've been worrying about their house, their job, how they're going to eat, how they're going to stay warm. So, yes, I'm very lucky that this has been a bubble of you know I kind of I have all my chicks in my nest and yeah. we were able to keep it warm and feathered and you know and I'm not going to rose tint it it's been challenging for everybody but I also recognize the fact that we didn't want for anything physically in this mm. time and actually not having to get to places or you, you know but I, I recognize my my privilege in that but there's an awful lot of again stories being told already about people are having a theory or an opinion about what's going on and whether it's a gift a curse uh i don't know a culmination of, of choices that we've made or an evil plan you know and i think mm -hmm. you have to maybe admit that wherever you are on the spectrum it's about respecting the stories other people have heard because again looping right back again to what you're saying and the very concept of what you're bringing together with these conversations is the stories that we know or tell or formulate come from the ones that we've been told or have told ourselves so we're not looking at it you can't tell someone else they're wrong really because they're coming from their position or perspective. Caveating that with the fact that sometimes fact does need to be taken into the equation in the stories that people are, are telling themselves. But I think it's a, I think it's been a hugely bonkers chapter to live through. And I, I think we're only, I think we are in the first chapter. I don't think this is the end of the story. And remember when we look back and think, oh, we thought it was bad with Brexit, I wonder if at the end of 2021 or 22, we'll say, oh, remember when we thought, you know, 2020 was rough. I feel like there is a collective, yeah, 
pitching around of planetary something. <laughs> well, I think with whatever's coming or you know to pass for listening to you then katie it's just reminding me of empathy mm -hmm. and if if nothing else whilst all of these things that we can't control are going on mm -hmm. one of the things as individuals we really can tap into is empathy um for each other mm. i completely agree and as you say that's how we met in the first place and our paths crossed was because we're both aligned to people who and our, you know, I suppose our values and the stories that we seek are the are the human ones, are the ones of compassion and empathy and connection and community. And that's definitely the flavor of, of our conversation today. And I think as a mum, I feel very sad. I feel a lot of grief for the worlds that I've brought children into. And I, you know, there's there's a saying that we don't inherit the earth we're the guardians of it for the next generation and and I think yeah. I just feel yeah from my personal stories and journeys I think we need a tribal revival I think that <laughs> a, lot I of that. a tribal <laughs> revival that, that would be my campaign slogan I think if I was ever going to go into into politics I think our pursuit of things I think we always um and we always again I'm saying this you know from my I'm saying my chaotic journey of searching and looking and questing for things. I think sometimes non-action and stillness, and I think that's what we were saying some people have found in this pandemic pause, mm. is once you put down, you know, or you stop, you realize you don't need or want or care for the things that you kind of validated your life with when you were on that treadmill, mm. you know, before it, before the wheels fell off. So I think it's definitely a time for reevaluation, but it's, yeah, we, we have to hope that the empathy wins over, I don't know, anger or, or frustration or all those things. Always. Well, changing tack just slightly, I wanted to move on to one of the, your second chapter that you wanted to talk about was love. And the meeting of Ross, who um, <laughs> I do not know, but the very first time we spoke to one another, you were telling me about this gorgeous neighbour that had come along. So I'd love to hear more about this story and, and yeah, you and Ross and how you, you've created this family together. My handsome neighbour who became my handsome husband. <laughs> <laughs> so like all cliches I seem to embody, one of them was that love finds you when you least expect it. And again, echoing something that, you know, I think I'm learning about my own life just in telling you this, because I'm hearing some lessons that maybe, maybe I have learned. It was when I stopped searching for love and stopped expecting it. And, you know, looking at everybody on a train carriage, wondering if that was the person, you know, he caught my eye and, you know, you run away with stories about encounters before they've even, before they've even happened. Yes. My wonderful husband, Ross. So when we met, I was living in a house with my twin boys as single mum. And we were in the process of packing up all of our belongings to be moved into council accommodation with the support of Women's Aid um, and the police. And it was kind of the culmination of things not working and me really struggling and <laughs> 
yeah, we were literally putting, I was putting things in, in boxes uh, and this gorgeous man moved in a few doors down and we waved at each other a couple of times as we sort of came in and out of the, of the car parking spaces in front of the houses. And then one day he, he got out and came and said, hello. And I said, hello. (laughs) And I just brought my boys back from school. So they had just gone inside. So we had a chat in the car parking space. And he he said I looked a bit like his yoga instructor. Uh And I said, oh, that's funny because I don't do yoga. I didn't think anything more of it. And then he asked if I wanted to go around to his for a drink one evening. And I said, oh, I'd love to, but I can't really because of my children. But if you want to come around to mine, I'm always home (laughs) with my boys. (laughs) So he said, how about seven o'clock this evening? So he came around at seven o'clock that night. Six weeks later, we booked our wedding. Wow. (laughs) And so he helped me move into the council flat. And then he helped me move out, engaged, pregnant, and then we bought, uh, we got married, we bought our, our first home together. And he's, yeah, he went from zero to hero with no children to to four very quickly. Yeah, that, that has been an extraordinary love story. Uh, and one that I couldn't have dreamed up, really, um, just the, the support and loyalty. Uh, and again, just we're talking about motherhood and parenting. But I think the unsung heroes for a lot of families are step parents. It's very challenging to come in. You're not legally recognized, but obviously the, the role that they play is, is hugely important. So yeah, we've been married uh, five years this November now. So there were a lot of naysayers. There were a lot of people who thought I was making a mistake, but for all of the things I've done in my life, that decision didn't even feel like a choice. It just felt like a real knowing uh, and one that he felt he felt too. So yeah, that's as close to love at first sight as uh, as I could wish for, I think. It sounds incredible. And I was going to ask that question for you guys to have met and then to kind of get engaged six weeks later. Uh, how, how did you know? I mean, but you've just answered that. How does one tell the difference in that moment between kind of excitement and infatuation and something that, you know, could be a really serious long-term thing. I think there are several things that made me certain that this wasn't an infatuation or that it, that it was something more substantial. One, were, well, two things. Firstly, I didn't feel churned up, that kind of butterflies excitement. Um, it wasn't all froth and no substance. It was just a, a very solid, familiar, comfortable connection, uh, and one that felt very reliable. And then the second thing, you know, I met him with no makeup on, you know, my children Mm -hmm. yelling that they'd finished on the toilet out of the window. And you know, (laughs) it wasn't high heels and champagne and, you know, trying to present a version of myself. I think I was completely vulnerable, completely, you know, my life was completely falling apart. And I wasn't looking to be rescued because I'm aware that in this story, people say, oh, well, you know, you you needed a hero and, you know, enter mm-hmm. husband. But I think if he wanted to be the hero, he could certainly have found an easier <laughs> dynamic. But <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, it was just... I mean, I'm not going to be able to answer the question, what is love and this? People have been trying to do that for years and, you know, Shakespeare yeah. and Plato and Rumi and I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to be more eloquent than that. But I think in, in my experience, it was just 
something inexplicably familiar. Mm -hmm. It felt like home. It felt like Mm. home. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Hollywood or romance books or whatever kind of sell this romantic notion of fireworks and butterflies, you say, and excitement. And but there's something in that that deep knowing and that sense of calm or familiarity and listening to you I was just thinking about when I met my husband and and we met on a kind of blind date you know online dating kind of thing and one of the things I will always remember is during the course of that first conversation just exchanging some personal details that you know were really important and seeing that he understood that I felt, I physically felt it. I felt this weight lift from my shoulders that I didn't know had been even sitting there. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there's something to be said around being understood, being seen. Yeah. That feeling, I think, as you said, of just feeling at home, that's really powerful. Yeah. And I think you're right. What you've identified, I completely resonate with. And I think you know, my husband even said to me at the time, you didn't need rescuing as much as people made you think you did. You needed to be loved. And I think real love is steady and steadfast. And and that doesn't mean it can't be, you know, I think you we still had that excitement and butterflies mm. that were still there, but there was something, um, the foundations were, they felt much stronger than that. And I think, yeah, for me, I think in all the years of, trying to be something I thought somebody might want to be, you know, or want me to be, or rather than just, it, it takes a, I think that's one of, one of the things I'm most enjoying about getting older is feeling less need to impress mm-hmm. people and just feeling more, I mean, I'm not all figured out. There's still you know things, there's a long way to go, but I think just not needing to be, what you imagine people might expect of you or and to actually just show up as who you are and it takes courage and bravery but I think as it sounds like you experienced in that those first dates with your husband when you show your true hand and it's accepted it's something so, yeah I've got kind of goosebumps as, as, as I said it it's something so um I don't know soul affirming in that yeah, like I had said, kind of being seen, fully seen, and mm-hmm. even some of the, the darker sides being acknowledged and being loved for them, um, mm-hmm. not in spite of them. It's really interesting. <laughs> so your second set of twins, when did they join you? And I mean, how did you feel? You've already said twins aren't in your family. What on earth were you thinking when you you heard that news what went through your mind so yeah we knew that we wanted a family and that's another thing that people ask to greater or lesser degrees of diplomacy and tact is, you know, the, <laughs> the assumption that this was all an accidental whirlwind and it wasn't a conventional timeline but but you know our second set of twins were definitely well our pregnancy was definitely wanted we didn't know at the time it was going to be twins so i had a feeling that it might be twins again. And not for anything, you know, palpable, but just a sense. So we booked in for an early scan. And I said to the male sonographer, who's never been pregnant, that <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ha- I said, I recognize every pregnancy is different. And 
you know, I know I've only been pregnant once before, but I've just got a feeling that this is twins again. And he practically rolled his eyes at me Uh to tell me not to be ridiculous. And then a few minutes later, he said, ah, it does look like there's more than one in there. And in that moment, I didn't know if I'd won or lost because (laughs) I was like, I I told you. (laughs) And then it was that sort of that realization that what had been one of the hardest chapters of my life, you know, and I never in a million years imagined that I would be going back to the the twin trenches mm-hmm. and that start line again. So I think I didn't really talk very much for a few days. <laughs> and Ross did keep saying, you know, we are, we, this is good news, like we are happy about it. And, and I was, but I just was hugely daunted mm. um, because it's, because I, you know, I knew, <laughs> I knew this time that, that, that it was, it's really tough. Um, but obviously this time, what made the biggest difference was having, you know, being in the right relationship with a supportive partner. But there's been a lot of mirrors. I'm like a sort of twin science experiment because I've had two cesarean births. I've had, you know, one was private, one was NHS. I've been a bottle fed twin mum an exclusively breastfed twin mum, married, single, you know, I've done kind of every variation of it. So there's not many questions that I can't have um, an opinion on now. (laughs) But it was really, really intense. And and our little ones, the the youngest set of twins, they're, they're four and a half now. So they've just started school. So I feel like we're just beginning to lift our, to lift our heads up. But yeah, it's been yeah, intense. <laughs> I can only begin to imagine. I think I told you when we first spoke that I had really, really wanted to have twins for whatever reason, but it wasn't to be. But it's I was just so excited to hear your story and that you have these two two lovely sets. I mean, you'd said before about when you had your first boys, there just wasn't that much information out there around multiple births, I guess, or multiple parenting. Do you think you have a, another twins book to write? Oh, that's a good question. I think... What I've been told by the publishers is that by the time twins is kind of niche anyway, and then by the time people have survived that kind of first year, they haven't got the energy to pick up a book and look and look at how to parent twins. You're kind of making it up as you go along. There, it's interesting. I still contribute to some parenting um, sites sometimes because I think it's important. I feel like I have a, a duty or a desire to tell the reassuring voice of, of multiples because I think what what I found definitely the first time around, which as you said, led to, to the book, was that there was a real shortage of of reassuring information for women expecting more than one baby. You literally had a few kind of scary pages in in the in the pregnancy books and the magazines, you know, you might have half a column where someone's anecdotally talking about a twin pushchair or mm-hmm. but but it's not, it wasn't kind of normalized or when you did stumble across the information about multiples, it tended to be all high risk and, and quite intimidating, which, and I'm not naive enough to think that that's not necessary. It is statistically higher risk. Um, you know, there's more people and more things that can go wrong. It's harder on the pregnant woman's body. So it does need to be, I'm not saying it's the same, but I think it it's important that women who have just found out they're having twins are you know, it, it doesn't have to be awful. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So Katie, I'm really intrigued. The third chapter that you wanted to talk about today is shamanism and the importance of, of shamanism in your life. I mean, where would you tell me? What would you like to, like to tell me about this? Of all the wonderful ways my husband changed my life, introducing me to um, a shamanic community has, it's definitely molded who I am and, and how we're, you know, how we're raising our twin tribe <laughs> they say it takes, it takes a village but I think we yeah we'd go for a tribe so my husband has a circle of friends who are involved in spiritual communities in in very many ways one Charlie Morley who is um he used to be I think he's he is like a hip-hop Buddhist guy there's these there's these amazing amazing group of people and they are all standout exceptional people and they they might be talking about out of body experiences or specifically shamanism so i think for i mean i grew up in surrey going to sunday school being told by religious figures that they had more right to be closer to a connection than their congregation. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things about shamanism and these spiritual practices is that is that's hugely different to that is that they believe and practice that everybody has the right to that connection themselves. So the hierarchical nature of organized religion just isn't applicable in these circles and not just for that reason, but I think large, you know, largely because of that, that it's a much more harmonious way of living. So there was one night in particular that was utterly transformative. There was there's a, a tribe called the Huni Quin Amazonian tribe from the Brazilian Amazon, and they, although these tribes are historically quite reclusive, they feel that it's their duty and for years, there's been prophecies told of a time when the tribes would need to take the swan song of the rainforest out of their indigenous pocket to the rest of the world mm -hmm. to remind us what we've forgotten and the ways in which we need to reconnect to ourselves, nature and humanity. And again, I love the way that <laughs> these conversations we've had, it's all quite neatly tying up. So I sadly haven't been to the Brazilian Amazon yet, but it's definitely on my wish list. So I live not far from Glastonbury and Ninawa Paidamata, who is the leader of the Huniquin mm. tribe, the kind of chief shaman, uh, his name means father of the forest. And he opened a tent at Glastonbury. And um, I was able to spend an evening with them um, around a fire and under the stars and just witnessing their wisdom teachings and traditions and storytelling. Again, hugely important drumming. And, you know, it was a world away from from Sunday school, you know, mm. everyone's shoes were in a pile, you know, and, and the lives that everybody walked in those were kind of abandoned. And, and you came in and, and there was, you know, it was literally feathers and headdresses mm. and drumming and sage. And, and it's so evocative, not just because I'm exoticizing it as something other, but again, because it resonates as something familiar mm. in the same way there was a knowing when you met your husband and I met mine, there's this, even though it's new, it feels old in a very mm -hmm. comfortable, reassuring way. And I think these practices are in our, 
you know, I don't know if it's DNA, but they're in our... Like in our cells on a cellular level almost. Yeah, there's, there's some ancestral link mm. to that way of living and it awakens when you step back into it. I, it's almost palpable. There's something, again, it's like coming home. And they have, you know, sort of masculine and feminine or divine feminine, divine masculine, but it's not in a way that one is better or more powerful or more important, but it's about balance and it's about the divine masculine in the women and honoring yeah. the feminine in the masculine. So I think it's, again, we were saying about the the labeling and the deconstructing of identities and labels. And, and I don't know when I sat around with that community, it was just acceptance. You, you just were who you are. You didn't have to, you know, no one asks what you do for a living. You know, no one, when you, in, you, you introduce yourself with, you know, a hug and a, and a heart to heart physical, yeah. you know, contact and, and it's just gorgeous. And, and the pace of it is, it's, it's joyous. It's not frantic. It's the absolute antithesis of, of consumerism and, and, you know, money and, you know, and there were all sorts of people around that circle. Um, you know, there were lawyers and doctors and people who lived in caravans and people who travel and people who were in the system and out of the system, but it didn't matter because around that circle, it was just shared experience and, that word again, connection. Mm. It sounds like soul recognition to me, mm. like just souls recognizing, seeing each other, almost like a reunion in some way, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's a really accurate and beautiful description of it. It does, it does feel like that. It's like a, you know, these prophecies which the tribes believe are happening now are. They talk of times where, you know, the fish die in the oceans and, and the trees are burning and the birds fall from the sky. And, and they say there's this tribe of many colors. And I don't know whether you, you've heard, you know, the rainbow children or indigo children. And, and there is an awakening. And I do feel like it's, you know, for all of the energy that we spend, particularly in the West, looking forward in accumulating knowledge or seeking sometimes the solace is in remembering. And I think when you sit with these people who haven't strayed as far from that way of living, it is an honoring of something we've forgotten. So after what sounds like a really life-changing experience, how did you kind of translate what you had felt or learned in that evening, in that moment, into your day-to-day -day life? It firstly made me want to pack up and run away to the jungle <laughs> and just <laughs> abandon everything and go to where everything felt right and balanced. And But of course, I didn't do that. <laughs> and, I, and I think what we need to do now is, is bridge worlds. And I think if everybody left where we were to go back, again, it's this balance. It's about reintegrating or remembering. So how did I bring those lessons back into my home and my family? Mm. Firstly, it reminded me, it's like I, I check in more frequently. So I check myself about you know, if I start, you know, scrolling through ASOS or, you know, thinking I want something, you know, I, there's a little voice that tells me that's nonsense. And, you know, so it's, it's a kind of giving myself moral 
telling offs every now and Mm -hmm. again. I kind of feel like I experienced what matters. (laughs) So I, I keep myself in check with a little bit more regularity in that consumerist sense. And also we make time for communication and we do my husband runs men's circles where he it's particularly through the lockdown these kind of zoom circles where again there's this space for connection and honoring and sharing and feeling heard and we try and do that with the older boys um sometimes so not we don't make it a regular prescribed thing because that in itself can be jarring sometimes it's another thing to do yes but when it feels right we sit and give them the floor to talk so in terms of bringing back a little of that practice of sharing around a fire. Mm. We try and do that. We haven't got the fire pit yet, but that's, that's on the on the list. But on we'll, its sit, way. we'll sit, you know, on, on, on one of the beds in the, in their room and we'll, we'll, we'll say, how was today? How, you know, so giving them space to talk, which sounds really obvious and not, you know, enlightening at all, but actually, like we've said, really, being heard and really feeling seen is different to you know the way we talk most of the time so that's one way and then I have I'm whole I've been holding crystals while we've been talking so I'm (laughs) definitely we live near Avebury so um yeah I definitely feel drawn I have crystals and quartz uh we have aqua de florida which is kind of a a gorgeous perfume scent that can help you feel more cleansed we sage and smudge the house so it's a bit of a coven (laughs) 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 kind of ritual and, and magic you know again looping right back to us talking about fairy tales and stories i think all the magic that is in those books is still with us today and i think one of the biggest lies that's been told is that it wasn't real because I truly believe it was and is. And it does seem that you're certainly living in one of the most magical parts of the UK, you know, having these places like Avebury and Stonehenge and Glastonbury on your doorstep. Do you you must do you feel that in your day to day? It does feel like ancient land, definitely. And we moved here in all honesty, not with that intention Mm. or acknowledgement at all. We moved here purely on affordability. We came west because we needed, you know, it was a kind of tick list of requirements of of what we needed to provide for our children. Mm. But actually, as again, looping back to things that we've said, it, it felt like we've ended up where we were meant to. And certainly there is something special about about the land out here it's it is it's palpable and i think the more you practice and tune in to listening to you know and i'll sound like a complete hippie and i'm 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 not really at all i like my gold shiny boots and my you know but, <laughs> but I, i'm trying to walk both worlds i guess but i think you definitely you can feel the the earth and the ancient stuff around here it's a special part of the country Mm. I think I probably had assumed that you and Ross had purposely chosen to live in that part of the world. So it's interesting to hear that it was an accident, although I don't think either of us believe in accidents. And it reminded me when you were speaking about one of my mantras, which is there is a plan greater than mine. And although you were you were being guided to exactly where you were all meant to be as a family. Mm. Yeah, I think I do believe that. And I think sometimes we tell ourselves that we're more in control of our lives than we truly are. And it was a conversation Ross and I had 
the other the other day where you know we don't get into our cars and think that we're the vehicle but somehow we feel that you know we tell ourselves we are this human body when i don't believe that we are really i think we're having a human experience and i think that's why so much of this connection and flow of life i completely i would subscribe to your mantra as well i think there i think we are we're not the puppet master for sure mm. well i've shared my one of my mantras what is your mantra for modern living <gasps> well modern living ancient times my mantra is borrowed uh, from the huni quinn and they have a saying called solagria which means only joy and they really live and embody that and it is something that that I try to take on as well because if you always come back to joy then you're more likely to see that absolutely well it's been a pleasure and a joy speaking with you today Katie thanks again for being so open and um sharing some of your journey with me I really am grateful to have had you here oh Rebecca thank you what a lovely way to while away an hour and thank you thanks so much for listening to this episode of sharing tales make sure to visit our website www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode while there if you've enjoyed what you've heard we'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show if you'd like to tell your friends and family that would be amazing too big thanks to our sound producer and editor the wonderful erin mcguire at beyongolia productions be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now.